Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Chris Blattman, who is an economist and political scientist at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. You have, uh, thanks for doing this, Chris. You have done a lot of work in, in the area of crime and violence, uh, how to think about it, uh, both from a policy perspective, uh, but also understanding more about it from an experimental uh, perspective. Uh, and I have to say, you are the only guy I know who have traveled to more dangerous places than south side of Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, I, so actually, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, a lot of these places, I, I actually don't go anywhere truly dangerous. I, would, I wouldn't work in Pakistan and like tribal territories or Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, yeah. it's, it's funny. Yeah. South side of Chicago is not a bad analogy for uh, for Liberia or northern Uganda or places like this. They're, they're, they're certain, I'm not, none of them are very dangerous. To be fair. Yeah, yeah. So it's very analogous. Um, and so, so you have a paper in 2017 entitled Reducing Crime and Violence, Experimental Evidence from Cognitive Behavioral Therapy in Liberia. And you say we show that a number of non-cognitive skills and preferences, including patience and identity, are malleable in, in adults and that investments in them reduce crime and violence. So that makes a lot of intuitive sense, at least on the surface. Uh, so so what, do you, what do you mean by non-cognitive skills um, more broadly? Well, that's an unfortunate phrase that economists have sort of centered yeah. on. And so when I'm writing a technical article, I, I throw that term in. But you know, every, every, every skill is a cognitive skill in some sense. Um, yeah. What... You know, as 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 you or your listeners might know, generally, people people are sort of using that as a catch-all for for soft skills or other skills, and it can include everything from our abilities to sort of exert self-control to to uh, to something as as wildly different as as sort of our tastes for you know for being a good person. 
uh, or our tastes for identifying as a as a mainstream member of society. And and the idea is that all of these aspects of our tastes and our identity and our even our self control is is actually something that is is under our control. And that relatively, and I think something that like cognitive behavior therapy has shown in just a huge range of aspects of human life uh, is is really effective at sort of changing problematic thoughts that lead to problematic behaviors. Uh, and and so that that's just something I knew very little about, and I I just stumbled upon in yeah. Liberia this little innovative program, and, and that's kind of a big part of a lot of what my work's stem from. I just go to these places. I look for, for people who have what seem like maybe kooky ideas or things that have no business working the way I think I understand the world, but then everything points to them working. Yeah. And and I try to work with them to figure it out what's going on and scale it up and, and test it. Yeah. So, um, so you mentioned patience here. So if I if I abstract this just a little bit, Chris, so is it is it these skills that is sort of be considered to be autonomous, um, but you know, a sort of personality behavior, uh, but as you say, they could all be controlled, they could all be managed, and and perhaps training uh, could have an effect. And so you have an you have a an experimental study in Liberia, right? Which is a very interesting study. And there are four cohorts of uh, people there. Do you want to talk a bit about uh, sort of the design of the study? Sure. So, I mean, maybe stepping back, um, what happened is I was I was in Liberia looking for various programs, mostly working outside the capital. When I came to realize that probably to the extent the country was going to grow and stable again, uh, it wasn't going to be from these sort of former rebels and potential mercenaries who are off in the gold and diamond mines, which is where I'd been working. And, and I'd done some other studies and, and, and work. Uh, I realized that probably they were going to emerge in the capital part because they were close to the action. Uh, it was really easy to mobilize them. And not just into the next war, you know, maybe maybe a war which nearly broke out several times in neighboring Cote d'Ivoire would, would, would marshal them, or maybe there'd be election violence, especially around the elections involving uh, President George Weah and so forth. So so that seemed like the place for instability. And and so I had somebody, I called somebody I knew to show me around, a guy named yes. Johnson Bohr, who could go just about anywhere. And, and I wanted to understand sort of the fabric of life of these young men. And so we went to the He'd be, he could take me to a, like a drug den run by the former government head of the anti-terror squad under a previous regime, or he could take me to the mobile phone fencers, or he could take me to the pickpockets because he knew them. He had relationships with a lot of them being sort of an outreach and social worker. And, and we just talked to them. And every time we do that, we'd then we'd leave a drug den or something. And, and somebody would, uh, would, come up to me and come up to him rather as we're leaving yeah. uh maybe shining shoes across the street or selling shoes out of a wheelbarrow or something and he'd greet johnson very excitedly and then catch up and i'd say well, how do you guys know one another and and the first time the guy pointed to the drug den and he said well well i used to be like those guys and then i then i went to johnson's program and now i'm you know now i changed my life and <laughs> and i was like oh i'm and, and then that happened the next day and it happened the day after that. We'd keep meeting these young men say, oh, I used to be like that pickpocket or I used to. 
and then Johnson really helped me turn my life around. And, uh, and so I said to Johnson, like, what is this? Tell me again about this program. And he talks about like personal transformation and all of this. It didn't make any sense to me. And so I actually had him write it down. I was like, okay, let's go. And we sat in front of a computer for a few days in a bar and, uh, just wrote down activity by activity, day by day, what they do. Yeah. And my wife's a psychologist. Uh, and we we actually do a lot of our work together. She was off at, in the Golden Diamond Mines, I mentioned, helping run one of our other projects while I was doing this. And when she comes back, I show this to her. And I say, do you remember that guy, Johnson? And what does this look like to you? And she says, oh, this looks like cognitive behavior therapy. Like, I haven't seen it quite like this before. Hmm. But, um, but this seems... This seems like has echoes of, of some stuff we do in the US. It's just applied to different things. It's applied to being less aggressive and being less criminal and being more of a mainstream, adopting a mainstream identity rather than being a renegade or a, an outcast. And yeah. uh, and so um, so and so that's and that's a good sort of description. They basically spend eight or ten weeks in small groups led by one of the people Johnson's trained, sometimes Johnson, facilitating, uh, basically trying to recognize what their really problematic behaviors are to do with aggression and this identity and this lifestyle they've chosen, and then yeah. practicing small ways to sort of think differently or act differently in circumstances. Basically, practicing being a, faking being a, a different kind of person until it becomes second nature, which is something we all do and all have done in our lives. Uh, so this is... Uh this is the sort of, I don't know if it's the right term as Chris, but troubled um, young people, right? Yeah. Well, we tried doing the most trouble. I yeah. mean, these guys weren't just troubled. These guys were like professional stick-up artists or, or you know, potential mercenaries. And we were, we were sort of deliberately went searching for the, the people we thought would be the most likely to engage in political violence if it broke out. Okay. And so you, just to get an idea, Liberia, what, what is the sort of the demographics? How, what, what's the population of Liberia? Right. It's a tiny country. A lot of people might not might struggle to think about where it is on a map. It's, um, it, it's, it's an, a former American colony in a sense. It's, it's where yeah. blacks uh, from free, free blacks, um, mostly freeborn blacks, uh, returned uh, in the early middle 19th century from places like Maryland and Virginia and whatnot uh, to Africa. And it was the place where the Americans assisted them in settling. And, and then of course, there's a huge indigenous population that's intermingled. Uh, and, but it's, it's tiny. It's, it's on the coast of West Africa. It's right beside Cote d'Ivoire. It's, it's maybe just 4 million people. If the roads are any good, you could drive across it in a day. The roads are not very good. So it takes days to get across it. Um, but it's, it's this little country on the, on the coast. It's, it's tropical. It's, it's apparent, I think it's the wettest country in the world, uh, because it's basically just a lot of tropical rainforest and swamp hugging the coast. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty young. Um, uh, like a lot of, uh, countries in that region. And, uh, it's pretty poor. Like if, I think if you, when, when people rank countries on the human development index, yeah, uh, it's about one or two notches below Afghanistan, so it's not in a good place. Yeah, and so per capita income um, in the hundreds. Oh, that's a good question. I don't um, probably. Uh, I I mean, 
the the way to think about it is like the average person has a roof over their heads. Uh, it's it's not a particularly nice roof. They can eat three meals a day of relatively limited, you know, variety. So it's not people are. I, I, it's there's not it's not starvation or anything, but but it's a high levels of underemployment. Um, you know, people basically living on a couple dollars a day at the at the at the median uh, is is. But I don't actually have the recent statistics at my fingertips. You know, they didn't really have the data back then. You know, when I was there, they'd had yeah. just recovered from 15 years of political instability and war. So, you know, it's a guessing game as to how much, what, and, you know, it's just a made-up number, the GDP anyways. Right. So, so cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is basically uh, sort of a therapist providing guidance. Uh, so some sort of a program that they go through. What, what exactly happens in CBT? Right. Well, so a lot of people are probably familiar with it, even if they don't realize it. I mean, it infects a lot of uh, what we do from kindergarten to everyday therapy. Like if, if your listener had an anxiety disorder or depression or post-traumatic stress or uh, I mean, I'm actually using an app right now called Noom, which is sort of basically healthy eating habits. And it's all CBT based. It's very explicit. Uh, about that, all CBT is. It's it's basically saying, listen, you know, you're doing this as a problem. You're either getting anxious and not able to sleep, or you're eating too many calories. And basically, there are some simple habits that, if you learn to sort of recognize the urges and 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 think about them differently, then you're going to be able to change your behavior. And you're just going to, for the next twelve or fifteen or twenty weeks, practice these little things, take these baby steps, try to become really conscious of the thing that's driving this problematic behavior, these automatic thoughts and these sorts of reactions that you're having. And you're going to train yourself to recognize them and act differently. And it works pretty well. Uh, There's tons of evidence for a lot of these disorders, not sort of problematic behaviors that it's helpful. It's not helpful for everything. I think it doesn't work that well for drug addiction, for example. And this was just applied to a different kind of problematic behavior, which is that these guys are getting into fights on the street and they are robbing people and they are... um, they are tempted to join a conflict and they sort of recognize that this is, you know, the key is they're not very happy in the state of life. You know, if, if there was some counterculture that really celebrated their outcast status, then maybe they'd think this is great, especially if they made a lot of money at it. But, you know, this is a really bad life and they know it. Um, and they just don't realize that anything else is possible. And Johnson comes along, he says, listen, actually a lot of things you're doing are just bad thinking and bad habits. And I'm going to help you recognize that and practice some habits that help you basically be a normal person. And you don't believe me, but you're going to fake it for a while. And then you're going to realize you can get away with it and that you can fool yourself. You can fool other people. And we're all just fooling each other into thinking we're like normal. And I just need to sort of like give you the way. And, uh, and, and that's, that's basically it. Um, and yeah. 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 So, so it seems like this is a good thing, right, Chris? So, so you set out to actually test this in a in a randomized trial, right? So we, had, I mean, it seemed like plausible, and and I was happy that there was lots of it. Like whether or not it lasts, whether or not there's big effects, whether or not it can really help guys who are as badly off as these guys are really close to the edge um, of everything. They're they're close to the edge of extreme violence. They're close to the edge of extreme poverty. It wasn't clear that this could actually help them. Uh, especially if they were so far gone, it seemed. Um, and and so so we we ended up scaling it up and and so over several cohorts because it just took a long time to raise the money. It was super complex and 
just the capacity to run this program was hard. So we, but over the course of a couple of years, we identified a thousand of these really high risk young men and yeah. half got the CBT, half did not in, in groups of about 20. Uh, and then we also cross hatched a different intervention, which is where we just gave them a cash grant of $200. So some people ended up getting the grant. Some people ended up getting CBT only. Some people got both, some people got neither. And uh, the reason for the grant was because we wanted to think about this is a this was the clear constraint. Every time you said like what's what's stopping you from from being like that guy over there shining shoes, and they'd say, well, you know, I, I just don't, you know where am I going to get that? That's that's whole setup costs whatever maybe costs seventy five dollars. He's also dressed nicely. Uh, he's got a haircut. He has a place to sleep at night. Like I just need a little money to make money. And uh, so basically they were saying, I'm, I'm credit constrained. No one will lend me money. I don't have the money. I have nowhere to save it. Uh, and if I could get there, then I'd get off on this sort of, I'd be in this different equilibrium. Uh, I'd be okay. And which is possible. And, and of course there's a chance that they would interact and, and, and mutually reinforce one another. Um, and so, so we, so that, so yeah, so we ran this, this big trial with both, both interventions over the, over the court. And then we followed them up after, Followed them up a couple months after the program and grant, and we followed them up yep. a year and a bit later. And we're actually in the field right now, following them up after ten years. Oh wow! Okay, and so so in the in the very tactical sense, what did you find? So there are there are four uh, cohorts of people here. So uh, those who uh, received CBT and two hundred dollars. Right. So so the short answer, yeah, the yeah. short answer is yeah. Um, the guys who, so everybody who got the CBT turned their life around in the short run. So within a couple months there, we saw a big drop, like maybe 50% reductions in crime and violence. And it was evident also like they were dressing differently. They were talking differently. They were just thinking about themselves differently. Um, and the same was true in the first couple months with the people who got the cash grant. So they were they had also been able to start something, you know, they started selling goods on the side of the road in the market or something, something very basic. And they weren't making a lot of money, but they were doing a bit better. And so everybody was ahead of the control, control group that got neither. And then after yeah. a year though, basically everyone had regret. I, I, I want to say, so, so first of all, people had revered in the sense that it's not that they'd fallen back all the way because we caught them at their, lowest point. So a lot of the people in the control group are also doing better over time, right? Because we're just catching people right. by construction at their lowest point. But after a year, the people who only got the cash or only got the therapy don't look that different from the control group who got neither. Um, the CBT people are a little bit better off, a little less violent, but it seems to have receded. Whereas the group that got both still has sustained these really large reductions in crime and violence uh, and big changes in behavior. They're not making any more money. It turns out everybody keeps getting yeah. robbed or the police confiscate their goods or weather or something destroys. So so there, if there's no secure property rights, then, then yeah, then guess what? You can't accumulate capital and it's hard to make money. So everybody's poor again after a year. Right. But the guys who got the CBT and the therapy have really drastically changed their life. Like basically half of them have maybe stuck with this way of life, but half of them have, have changed and sustained a different kind of life. Hmm. And, um, and we think, we don't know for sure, we think what's happened is the CBT is so practice-based, right? It's sort of, it's like, it's just like, 
uh, uh, it's it's learning by doing. Yeah. And and we think what the grant did is after you did the CBT, it just sort of helped you keep practicing that different life for a bit longer, for maybe a few months longer. And then, you know, within six months, the money's gone because of the flood or the police confiscation or you're robbed. But you had that six months where you were getting up every morning and pretending to be a normal guy with a normal business and, and a, a six months where you didn't have to think about going back to th robbery or muggings to, to sort of just eat your next meal. And so it, it just sort of had this buffer zone, if you will, that helped you solidify this new life. Yeah. That, and whether it sticks, we'll, I mean, we'll see. I don't, I don't know what to expect uh, long run. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so interesting, Chris. So if I understand this correctly, uh, both CBT and the grant and the money uh, had beneficial effects in, in the very short run, maybe the money a little bit higher than CBT. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you have both of them, it seems to uh, seems to have reinforcing effect that continues longer. And so, so this has some policy implications, right? So, um, you know, it seems to me without the, those initial conditions set, uh, it's it, it, if I understand this correctly, Chris, it's very difficult to sustain the behavioral change that they mm -hmm. may have they may have acquired, but with with capital constraints continuing as as before, they just revert back very very quickly. Yeah. So, so my understanding, there's first of all, there's not a lot of long term studies of CBT in general, even when it's anxiety or phobias or the normal things it's applied to. But my my sense is that people think that that CBT should be effective long term for a lot of things. Hmm. Uh, it's often more effective or more sustained when people have booster sessions or other things to reinforce them along the way. So but but there's a sense that it might fade away a bit over time, but that that you can you can boost it over time. And and the, so the cash was like a big booster in some ways. Yeah. So it might have been had we done this differently uh, that with booster sessions and some additional support, the CBT could have been more lasting. That's that's a totally reasonable hypothesis. Um, it might be that this fades faster than some kinds of CBT treatments because mm -hmm. these guys, you know, if I have like a spider phobia and you help me get over my spider phobia through CBT, mm -hmm. then then it's not like the spider fear is like exerting this gravitational pull back to being fearful of spiders and I'm just going to turn a corner one day and I'm, I'm going to get attacked by 40 spiders. And that's just going to reignite my fear. Like that's not, that just doesn't happen. Right. So, so it's not surprising that like a spider phobia is, is, is a pretty, pretty, you know, that, that that's a, that's a pretty permanent fix, but you know, their, that their lifestyle, all of their friends, their, a lot of their social network is, are still in that life when they, when they inevitably have a bad few weeks and they're hungry, that, that old life, bears, you know, sort of calls and is an option. And so I think there is this more of a gravitational pull. So it's not surprising to me that this is this is more aggressive over time. We, yeah. It was funny, around the, at the exact same time, we didn't know about it, but at the exact same time, some people who are now close friends and colleagues, but I didn't know them at all then, were running a very similar experiment in Chicago high schools with a CBT program, hmm. not, without the economic aspect. So it was just the one treatment. And they found very similar results, like really big short-term results. But a year, year, year two later, the students were sort of back to normal levels of delinquent behavior. So so now, 
it, it turned them off during a really high delinquency period of their life. So that that's great. So it's super, super effective, cost effective, but, um, but it was, but again, it was sort of temporary. So maybe there's this gravitational pull. Yeah. I wondered if there is some sort of an environmental effect, Chris, I mean, it's, it's difficult to test because, you know, it'll be a big, much bigger uh, experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. What I mean by environmental effect is if, if, if your, um, if your friends are all in the program, yeah. then you can measure something. But if, if some of your friends are and some of your friends are not, yeah. then you know the gravitational pull that you talk about is probably a lot higher, right? Yeah, there are probably these network effects. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I have a student um, who started, you know, she started as a student of this, 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 these people who ran the Chicago study. And then when I arrived in Chicago, she adopted me as part of her committee. And she'd already been working on something where she was looking at the effects uh, on siblings of getting treated, or also just of whether or not you get treated, how that affects your sibling. Because yes. these CBT programs are increasingly common in US public schools. And so, and, and what she's found is, is things that are supportive of that. You know, nothing's concrete, but but she's finding things that point in that direction. So I agree that that would probably, and we anticipate that would be true. But if we designed the study in, in, in that way and like randomized groups, we never would have had this, the, we never would have been able to get any precise estimates. So we had to sort of do this much more individualistic approach, which is the normal CBT thing to do. But But I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go into one of your recent papers, which is more looking at the, the economic uh, aspect of it. So the, the long term impacts of grants on poverty, mm-hmm. nine year evidence from Uganda's Youth Opportunities Program. So this is in 2008. Uganda gave 400 per person, $400 per person to thousands of young people to help them start skilled trades, work more and raise incomes. Uh, you say uh, your observation here, yeah, four years on, an experimental evaluation found grants raised work by 17% and earnings by 38%. Uh, but again, disappointingly, after nine years, we find these gains have dissipated. Um, there's a lot of talk around. It's not completely related to this, but, um, you know, uh, minimum guaranteed income right. uh, in developed countries. Uh, we can take anything anything from this experiment in that direction. But you want to talk a bit about the experiment and, and why we are finding these these things sort of disappear after long after you know, some period of time. Right. So yeah, I mean you can this there's sort of like you can kind of see the echoes of of this in the later Liberia study, which you know I designed five or six years later. Um, the so so I was in I was in northern Uganda, which was a politically unstable place for various reasons for many years. I was working in the area most affected by a war, but there was a lot of cattle banditry. There were some refugees from Sudan. The whole broader region was a bit unstable, but as when it stabilized around 2005, the government in the much more stable and growing south and central Uganda wanted to plow in resources and just sort of help the north catch back up. And so this was, a, they had a whole bunch of schemes to do that. Um, and one of them was, you know, the, the big, the sort of the dirty secret of a lot of foreign aid the last 15, 20 years is governments want to get a lot of money out the door fast. Uh, it might be the British government or it might be the Ugandan government with British money or a World Bank credit, which was the case in, with this program. And they don't want to give people cash. Um, and so what they decide, they say, well, we'll start like a community development grant. And, uh, 
and the community will get this to you know build schools or start businesses or things and then they just drop 10 or twenty thousand dollars on that community out of a helicopter practically and and it's basically a cash grant sometimes it's to a group sometimes it's to a village council sometimes it's to individuals um and so they were doing a lot of uh, experiment, you know, quote unquote experimentation in the sense of like they were t trying out lots of ways of dumping cash in in fast and big ways on lots of people, but nobody was really studying it in a rigorous way to sort of say, uh, would this work? And and they wouldn't even call it cash transfer programs, partly because it wasn't just a pure cash transfer. You know, they were doing other things. Maybe there was a little training, but they, uh, but but also it was like politically, like the whole idea that you just give some poor person cash. Uh, of course, they'd waste it. They drink it, you know, or you know, uh, uh, they'll 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 waste it. They'll make bad choices. So there's this sort of paternalistic attitude that we just can't give people cash, <laughs> and which was totally plausible. I actually thought it was a terrible program when they asked me to study it. Uh, I was like, oh, this is gonna be a disaster. Why would you give these bozos cash? Like twenty, what if you what you know these? It's like some twenty-two year old getting, you know, twenty times their annual income. Or not 20 times. That's not true. Like one, one or two times their annual income in yeah. one go. It's sort of like when I was 22, if someone had given me like $100,000 or whatever, like two <laughs> times somebody's annual income was in Canada, yeah. which is where I was, I'm like, yeah. I, I would have made short work of that money. Like, uh, so I had a low opinion. Um, but uh, but I think that turned out to be wrong. So, so uh, and that was sort of the start of a lot of experiments I've had, which is, or just have some theme of like giving money to the last people you would ever give money to, where eventually the ultimate, you know, the, the absolute extreme of that was of course going to Liberia and finding mercenaries and street youth and thieves and saying, what happens if you give them cash? And actually they do well, even those guys are doing fine. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that, that was a big government program and they asked me to evaluate it. And so once again, we, we organized this big randomized control trial where we had several thousand people receiving it and several thousand people not. And then we initially followed them up after two and then four years. And then the paper you saw is, is going back after almost 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, it's surprising. You say, uh, little effect on mortality, fertility or family health or education. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this concept that um, you can give a cap money and that that individual will then use it optimally yeah. uh, to improve, um, you know, her situation, I think it's not necessarily true, right? Uh, I mean, well, I think it actually was. In the, you know, yeah. Everything in retrospect makes a lot of sense from like basic microeconomics. So... Um, if someone was to like find an American kid and give them a huge sum of money, it wouldn't, it's, it's not clear to me that that person's life would be that much different 20 years later because, hmm. because, you know, they just, it, it, you know, there's nothing, if I, you know, if I need to go to school, I can get a loan. If I want to start a business, I can get a loan. Maybe if I was a young person, like I have a little bit of difficulty, but I don't really face huge barriers unless I come from a really underprivileged background. And then that, that money might make a big difference. I might actually be able to start something I couldn't otherwise. And, and in the short run, I would look really different than my peers, but only if I was coming from a place where that money was like solving a problem I had. Um, and, and that's actually what this was doing in Uganda. It was saying, well, actually, most young people are like that really underprivileged American. Most people have no access to credit. There's no such things as loans. I mean, there's microcredit, but the interest, the loans are three months long and the interest rate's like 
200% a year. Like that is not a vehicle for investment. Um, so, so for all intents and purposes, people don't have credit. They also can't save. Like if you, you go to Liberia, Uganda for every, you know, here we grumble if we only get like a percent, you know, a percent would be like a terrific savings rate on a, you know, and a few percent is a great return on, on your mutual fund. Um, but yeah. your, your nominal interest rate in a lot of poor countries is like minus five or 10%, meaning you go to the local informal bank and for every dollar, for every $10 you give them, they keep a dollar. And then inflation is like 15%. So before you know it, your real interest rate is like minus 15, minus 20, minus 25%. So you, you save cash and it just sort of, it just sort of melts away over time. So, so you're also savings constrained. So if you want to start, if you want to save up to start a business, you need to, you know, you it's really hard. And so giving somebody a cash grant is a way to sort of catapult them forward and let them start something. And that's what people did. You give, you go to poor countries and we, I don't, I haven't seen evidence from the U S but if you went to underprivileged Americans, people who could be entrepreneurs, but are credit constrained, can't go to college yeah. or can't start a business. They invest it. They just, they make good choices on average with that money. They catapult ahead. Um, and that's what we found after two and four years. And it led to sort of that plus some other results from other people on cash transfers generally led to a lot of exuberance, um, which I think is partly deserved. But what we found, at least in this one case, and I think people are starting to see elsewhere to a degree is to say, well, after long enough time, what would have happened to me if I didn't get that grant? Well, I still had good ideas. I still knew what I wanted to invest in. I couldn't borrow easily. I couldn't save very easily, but I could find ways to save a bit. And so eventually what we saw in Uganda is the people who didn't get the money scrimped and saved and, and, and eventually was able to start something of their own. Uh, and so they caught up and uh, which is good. That's great news. That just means, you know, they're in a growing functioning economy. And so they weren't in a poverty trap. They were just, they got pushed. They, they were, it, so, so this cash grant sort of catapulted this generation forward, you know, five or 10 years sooner, which is, that's a great return on investment. Um, and, and, you know, it had some positive effects. They've got more savings and they've got, you know, more assets. And so there are some, there are some long run effects that are positive that, that you kind of expect because you got catapulted ahead, but it's, so it's, it's disappointing because we didn't transform lives, but it's also hopeful because we sort of said, well, actually people aren't so stagnant. People aren't trapped in, yeah. in this rut. You wonder. Yeah, I wondered, Chris, uh, you know, the giving money is one policy. Uh, microfinancing has had some successes. I don't know the data in places like India and Bangladesh. And so, so maybe, you know, there is a difference between financing something uh, than, you know, sort of an unconstrained endowment. <sighs> Well, so yeah, if you could give somebody a very low interest rate loan, it would have effectively the same effect. And maybe that would be better for society because you get the money back and you could give it to somebody else. And it wouldn't be as costly and have a big deadweight loss. You know, somebody has to pay back that loan or grant or somebody had to pay taxes for that grant. Uh, but here's the thing. No, find me a low interest, even medium rate uh microfinance anywhere in the world like like i said usually the interest rate is 5 10 20% per month um cuz the transaction costs are very high in these even the nonprofits these aren't like the these aren't like money grubbing money lenders although they are also charging high rates this is like the little the 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 ngos run by 
you know, well-meaning community leaders. Um, they, that's just that's just how much it seems to cost to run these loans for because of transactions costs. I don't know. I've never studied it in depth. And so as a result, uh, microcredit very seldom is an investment vehicle and very seldom. There's almost no studies that show microcredit has a effect on poverty. People love it. Like if you give people a borrowing option, even a short term one, they use it. It's like, you know, so so I always say microcredits like microwaves, uh, you know, everybody's happier they have one and if you give me a microwave i'm gonna be happier because i it's like i get this consumption value from the microwave you know i get this value from having more of a portfolio of, of borrowing in my life but it's not going to make me that much better off in material terms mm. okay so so we'll take a quick break uh chris when we come back we talk about a a, a different item that's gangs great okay talk to you sir This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back, uh, Chris. Uh, we were talking about some of the experimental randomized trials that you have conducted in uh, different countries in Liberia and Uganda, specifically uh, looking at um, therapies, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, as well as cash uh, given to people uh, to, um, to to reduce the issue of of uh, criminal uh, crime and violence. Uh, as well as poverty, and it seems to have mixed results. Uh, it has clearly tactical benefits, but in the long run, uh, things seem to revert back to the norm. Um, so you have another paper that is going to come out in a week or two uh, entitled Gang Rule, Understanding and Countering Criminal Governance. I, I find this paper <coughs> interesting. So you have a quote here, uh, strong states provide order, regulate everyday life, and collect taxes as a sole legitimate user of violence in society. Uh, you say when traditional leaders or NGOs provide order, they do not necessarily undermine the government. Far more threatening to state capacity and legitimacy are armed and hostile actors who settle disputes, police, and tax. And so, so, so you have some examples here in some countries where gangs actually provide these services that uh, we expect from governments. And uh, presumably, Chris, in, uh, in some of these cases, they might be more efficient in providing the services. Mm -hmm. Is that what you find? Uh, well, yeah, exactly. So th this is part of like a bigger, longer term project on on gang organization uh, and happens, a lot of my work right now happens to be in Colombia in the city of Medellin. Yeah. Um, and it, it came partly, you know, I, I went to, I, I had kids and then I was, it's very hard to work in Africa when you, you can't bring your kids to Liberia or Northern Uganda there. It, it's totally safe. There's just no hospitals. So I don't really want to bring the kids. Uh, and so, so I started looking for places that were relatively developed, but have violence. And I started working in Colombia. Yeah. Um, and when I went there, uh, with a postdoc that I was working with, who's from medicine, what, what not even he really realized in spite of working on crime 
in spite of being from Medellin, in spite of be before becoming a PhD student, he was actually in the government, the, 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 the regional government, uh, working on security issues. And he had no idea that just the number and the depth and the organization of gangs in the city, uh, street gangs called combos. Yeah. And not only that they were sort of like drug gangs everywhere, they run the local uh, drug corners um, and they run, you know, the loan sharking. That's that's that that was true in the U.S. as well. But these ones actually uh, seem to govern their neighborhoods to a degree. And and what we realized is that this is super common. You know, the Taliban do this. The Colombian guerrilla, the FARC did this. Uh, Gangs, they do this in the United States and in the Texas and the California and to some extent the Illinois prison systems. They govern the lives of civilians who are here. Civilians are the other inmates. Um, it's in Rio. It's in El Salvador. It's all, so it's a really common phenomenon for these non-state armed groups to 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 govern. And so we were we were we so the it, it the broader project was just well let's understand like how are these how are these gangs organized? Like, there's just no information like on career paths or internal organization or the market structure and profit, you know, margins and things of this nature. What are the economics? But then why would they govern? We were, I was just really curious hmm. and just understand why they ruled. And so this was a paper that grew out of what's now maybe four years of a lot of qualitative interviews, a lot of sort of some economic theory, uh, collecting a lot of data and then eventually running an experiment. Yeah, and, and so, 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 what are the answers to those questions? So, why do they govern? Why do they settle disputes? Is it just more like they have a captured market and mm -hmm. they want to keep order in that market so they can extract some rents? Or what? What is not buying? Right. Uh, well, there's a, so there's a few motives. So, I mean, one. So, so one of the things is is they don't do all sorts of. There's lots of governance, right? So. What do we think of as governance? Well, one thing would be infrastructure, right? Well, they don't provide infrastructure. The government provides infrastructure, but they're not providing these big expensive public goods. And they're not also, they're not doing like collective decision-making and coordination problems. Like where do we, where do we put the garbage? Where do we put the dog poop? Like how do we solve these sort of collective problems that we have? They're not doing that either. Um, the, they're, they're actually focused on, a, and this is true of a lot of these armed groups everywhere. They focus on a narrow kind of governance. They focus on protection services. And protection, by that I mean uh, dispute resolution. So <clears throat> you have to evict a tenant, your neighbor's playing the music too loud, uh, somebody owes you money, uh, somebody's harassing your store. Like there's a sort of like, basically dispute resolution. Um, security and policing, crime reporting, dealing just a lot of street disorder as well. So they're they're basically selling protection and protection is a problem. And you can make money from selling private goods. I could sell beer, I could sell cigarettes, I could sell uh they can I can make send or sell loans and I can sell protection. And so it's just a private good that they can sell and uh, and and it's certainly helpful if you have a comparative advantage in coercion and basically roughing people up, which they've developed for their other business lines. And so it's sort of a natural thing for them to go into that they can make money from. So there's this sort of just basic, just like any other business, They're, they they set a price and the state sets a price and they compete with the state to sell protection. So uh, and 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 we thought it was more limited to that, but then we sort of you know a lot of the papers about uncovering how that's actually kind of a minor motive and how the, there are these actually other motives that sort of drive 
drive their their need to govern. So, so the mechanics of that, Chris, just for my own understanding. So, is the price like tax that everybody is paying the same amount or same percentage or whatever, or right. is that a transaction? Right. So, the, in 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 uh, in Medellin, they call them. Sometimes they call them security fees yeah. or surveillance fees. Other times they call them vacuna, which is literally translated means vaccine. Um, and uh, and you can kind of so some of it's fee for service. Like if if you have somebody you need to evict, or you have a debt you need to collect, or you have a neighbor with a noise complaint, and I come and I solve, you call me and I solve that for you, then I just charge you a fee, sort of like a court fee or a you know just any kind of fee for service. Yeah. Um, but mostly they, they and that fee they'll set, you know, it's totally arbitrary, you know, how much they think you can pay, your relationship with them, you know, it's very informal. Um, most of what they collect is in the form of these security fees. You can think of it like a weekly subscription yeah. uh, payment. And so, you know, I subscribe to Apple Music, but if I have a store and live in Medellin, maybe I subscribe to the combo. And they, and that just means I can call them and they'll take care of problems without maybe charging me fees and they'll keep their eye on the street. Um, they don't charge everybody, you know, they charge, you know, they'll charge if they choose to enter that business line in the neighborhood. They they may only provide it on some streets and not others. And they might not charge everybody on the street because, you know, I might be connected to you or I might be connected to the police and or I might just be a refuse to talk to the combo and willing to and they just don't they think it's not worth the bother. So so it's maybe 20 or 30 or 40 percent of businesses might pay. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's really great. Is that is that uh, multiple service providers in the same uh, same markets? So usually we think of it as a you know the way we start to we sort of try to analyze it through the lens of like these old duopolistic models of competition that I learned you know in grad school and never looked at again, yeah. uh, but have relearned. So so typically the state and the and the combo the, the combo has a local monopoly on its drugs and and no other combos operate in its territory, and so the the, the market for protection is mainly between the state and the combo. You know, there are community leaders and there's lots of informal local governance. And in any community in the world, there's always big men and women and people who will solve problems for you. So it's never a true duopoly. But for the most part, like the main providers are, are the state uh, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the combo. Okay. And so, so, so they have sort of territorial um, monopolies, uh, except for the government, of course, and and you, you mentioned, Chris, that the, the real incentives are something different than an economic motive. So it's, it is sort of an economic motive, but it's like an indirect benefit. You know, economists would call it an externality or spillover from other business lines. So basically, there's several things that are driving it. The big one is just the fact that um, that providing order helps them make more money at their other businesses. And so because the state is predating on their drug markets and the state is predating on their loan sharking and so forth. And you, 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 you need two things. One is you don't want the police to have an excuse to come into the neighborhood because every time they come around, maybe they'll shake you down or they'll see your drug corner or something. And so you, you, you have an incentive to provide order just so that the police don't have an excuse to come around, but you also want civilian loyalties, you know, in the, in the insurgency literature, they call this hearts and minds, but in the, it, we, we just sort of think of it more as a loyalty, which is to say that when, you know, the cops come around, you want the you know, one gang leader told us, um, you know, you want the civilians to hide you and you want them not to tell the cops where you are and you want them not to give the cops any information. And if you take care of business, uh, 
and you keep them happy, then they'll tolerate you and they'll support you and they might even hide you from the police and they certainly won't collaborate. And so, so basically there's this sort of externality on this other business where you can kind of think of the state and the, the, the gang are in a contest to control this drug market. One wants to get rid of it. One wants to exploit it and charge monopoly, monopoly prices. Uh, and, and so provide this governance, they, they provide because it has this positive spillover, which helps explain why a lot of gangs provide the services without, um, without even charging much of a vacuna. And, and it also helps explain why they wouldn't necessarily charge everybody or works, make such big investments to, to charge so many people. It's because they don't want to, you know, they, they just, they want to have enough to sort of make it worth their while, sort of maybe meet their costs, but they, and they, they also charge a fee because they don't want to be overconsumed. Like it was free. Everybody would get them to govern everything. So it's sort of a way to ration their service, but they're mainly, a lot of them tell us they're mainly doing it for this to sort of sort of help this other market. Yeah. Did you get some insights into how they're structured? Is it, is it like a mafia structure or it's an LLC with members or how the profits uh, divvied up? Yeah. So, um, we're, that's part. This is another paper which we hope to have out later this year, where we're collecting data. We've we've been developing. We've got contacts in about forty of these organizations. Usually, we know it, we've met at least one leader or middle ranking member, yeah. uh, and we're collecting this kind of information. So, they are. Uh, I wouldn't call them like autocratic organizations entirely. Like they they definitely have a leadership structure. The guys at the top are the bosses, but you know who are you to control this neighborhood we're all all 15 of us or all 25 of us in this combo are um are from the same neighborhood and you're smarter and you're more talented and you work your way up to the top so you're the coordinator which is what they call the the leader but um but you know we're all we all have some legitimacy and so i think that constrains the extent to which this one person makes all the decisions and monopolizes the profit so there is a certain amount of cooperative decision making and a lot of profit sharing so the the coordinator gets you know a lot of money. He's, you know, the coordinators are some of the best paid people in the city, but uh, but you know, the twenty-one year old or the eighteen-year-old who's running the drug corner, or who's just even some cog in the drug corner, is also getting paid really well, uh, much more than their marginal costs. So, sorry, much much more than 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 you know what they what their outside option is available. And I think it's partly because they can make this. Uh, partly, it's a moral claim, but partly it's also just a coup threat, like. You know, we, I've got to keep, I've got to share the rents, uh, not equally, but but not too unequally in the organization to avoid an uprising. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. So it's more like a, a, a company, like an LLC with managing partners uh, and so on. Uh, maybe they have different equity stakes in the in the organization. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me that it, it, it's more like a market organization rather than a mafia. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm not so sure. I don't know about the. I, I guess I hope to know what you think about when you're saying like a mafia organization, because I'm I'm not sure that that street gangs, or mafias are that much differently organized in the United States. Uh, Sicily, I don't, you know, I know a little bit, but I actually don't know this aspect of their organization. Oh, maybe this is my bias, you know. And then I think about a mafia, I, I think of this autocratic, you know, the. 
to the top guy can do pretty much anything. Uh-huh. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, where there's no so here's the thing. Like in a firm, yeah. it's there. They I think they tend to be, and I I can't speak for sure to the Sicilian American mafia because I just know a little bit. Um, but if if I like run a company, there's a set of there's a set of well-defined property rights that sort of put make me the boss, right? The shareholders own the company. They have all the voting rights. They make me the CEO. And there's very and then like an employee has just no almost to say they can threaten to leave or they can organize and strike and that gives them some bargaining power. But at the end of the day, the the kid who's like the junior jun, most junior most person in a partnership or who's in some company has no no say whatsoever. Uh, and and the, but there's nobody there's nobody enforcing your coordinatorship. There's no laws or external body of of rules to sort of support your your leadership of this organization. You only lead because everybody consents to let you lead. And so there's there is a sort of revolution constraint that uh, that that sort of binds you. You have to keep everybody happy, and this is true of any mob organization. And so. Uh, so, so you piss people off too much, or you don't listen to them, and and they'll knock you out. Right. Yeah. So, so there is a sort of a risk sharing happening, right? So anybody yeah. can uh, basically sell you out if they're pissed off. Yeah. So the way they the way they build property rights over these organizations, and I think this is probably true in the U.S. and Sicily as well, is is um, you can kind of collude as a set of leaders to sort of decide that we're going to support one another, and we're not going to support say rebellions and so if you could say so if i'm like a junior member of a group and i like kill my leader and i try to take power in a coup then it could be that all the other armed groups you know have made commitments in some way to like exclude me or to make that unattractive and that's a way of of providing some property rights for the leaders and some security and and then letting the leaders get richer at the at the the sort of the the general member's expense. And that happens to a degree. That's that there's an element of that. There is like a big hierarchy of crime. There's a lot of groups, there's a lot of collusion in Medellin as well. Um, but but still there's a you have a lot of bargaining power as a junior or middle ranking member. Yeah. This is not a bad thing for the state, right? So do we have examples where you know the state basically decide decide that this is how they're going to govern? In other words, you know that they have going to they're going to have eighteen gaps that are given sort of local monopoly to manage those spaces, and and the state itself step in only only if there is an issue that they cannot really solve. Well, you know, so in a very short run sense, so it's certainly true that if you're a mayor and you come in, it does not make a lot of sense to like mess with this system because you have a term limit of one term. And so you're going to be out in four years. And if you take on these gangs, there's just going to be a lot of violence and a lot of people are going to get killed and it's going to be a big hassle. Uh, But long run, this is not a good system for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, there's no rule of law here in their governing. Like it's sort of like, you know, the the gang solves the dispute of the person who pays the most or who's the best connected to them. Um, So it's not the kind of egalitarian governance uh that that we want um in addition it's like it is threatening you know these guys this is not exactly like people's ideal so everyone nobody can imagine a life otherwise nobody would want the gang to leave tomorrow but everyone would seems to like a world where there'd be no gangs in 20 or 30 years they just don't know how to get there like likewise maybe the big problem is just the fact is is 400 or actually there's about 380 
combos in the metropolitan yeah. area. There's about 17 higher level mafia-like organizations called Razones uh, above yeah. them. So there's almost 400 organizations. And about every decade or two, they've gone to war with one another. They maintain a fragile peace. They do collude. It's not in their interests to fight because they don't like dying. It interferes with their business. But it's a fragile equilibrium. And so every 10 or 20 years, there's been a big war. And in those moments, Medellin becomes the most violent place on the planet, literally, by, by a large margin. Uh, and and that's, that's bad for everybody. That's especially bad if you're a gang member because your mortality rate is really high. So, so it's not, so, so long run, it's not really a peaceful equilibrium for city to have this. And so they'd like to get rid of it. They don't really know how. And that was partly what the paper was about. And one of the things we discovered through by basically through an experiment, but also by doing some quasi experimental analysis of like a really long run effort to increase state presence is that we found that actually, because they have this other, like normally if they just, if this was just a market, if it was just that plain, I sell protection, the state sells protection. If the state sort of decided for its own reasons that it wanted to crowd the, the gangs out, they could just provide more. If this was a normal market, if they were just like selling, you know, whatever, loans or something, yeah. they could they could just crowd the gang out by providing more. And that, that was kind of the philosophy that a lot of people had. And I think the main thing we found from this paper is actually once they have this other motive, it's not so clear. It's actually going to hinder your crowding out. And if their other motive is strong enough, the more you push, the more they're going to push back. And, and actually what we found, we find a lot of evidence to suggest that if the state tries to crowd the gangs out by governing better and governing more, then, yeah. uh, then the, the, at the very least, that has no effect on the combo's incentive to rule. And if anything, it pushes in the off opposite direction. So over a 30-year horizon, when the in some neighborhoods, when the state got 20% better at governing, so did the combo. And so there was no change in relative state governance. So once they're established and they have these incentives, it can be really hard to crowd them out in this conventional way. Yeah, I mean, from a consumer's perspective, they could provide free services. They could provide a higher level of service, perhaps, compared to the state. So they can they can always differentiate. Yeah. I would imagine. Um, do we have any insights into coming back uh, closer to home, uh, to Chicago? Do we have any insights? Uh, you know, um, you know, Chicago also suffers from not to this extent, mm -hmm. uh, but, but uh, gang related issues. Is there anything that we can say in that model? Yeah. So you know, I've been out of it, I've been interested in reading more about what has worked or what people think so there isn't really a systematic body of knowledge where people have collected how how to get out of this actually there's some but it's surprisingly fragmented um what, what chicago did was sort of adopt a strategy of cut off the head uh so they had these high it, it was very similar they had personally like or they had these mafia-like organizations that were the super gangs like the the black p-stones and the gangster disciples and the the vice lords are are three of the Several, you know, there are several, but three of the sort of super super organizations that encompassed all the street gangs, which are more like the combos. And there, there are hundreds yeah. of these street gangs, which, which were sort of organized themselves under these umbrellas. So it's very much like it's organized in Medellin. Uh, they didn't govern the civilians so much, so they didn't, they, they, they may not have had those incentives. Um, and and what the, 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 the government took the same strategy they took with the mob, which was to basically just cut off the head, cut off the heads, cut off the heads. Um, 
Yes. And that the problem is that the, at the end of the day, the mob's fundamental business lines were kind of fading. Like the mob made money from lotteries and the mob made money from like they ran numbers games and loan sharking. Uh, they bootlegging, um, you know, a few other things. They, they ran the, like labor rackets. All of those are in decline by the 1970s or 80s. A lot of their business lines had their heyday 50, 60, 70, 80 years ago or longer. And so when you knocked out the heads, it wasn't like there was a fundamental market reason for the mob to be there. And so that worked pretty well. They just put everybody in jail, made it very difficult for the, they, they basically changed the laws to put people away for a long time, make it easier to arrest them. And that really weakened the mob. The problem with applying that to street gangs, in my view, this is just me making stuff up, but my, my view, the problem this didn't really work for street gangs is because their, their main market is retail drugs. And there's still a market for retail drugs. You cut off the head, people still want to buy marijuana. You cut off the head, people still want to buy uh, Coke or whatever, you know, whatever they're, now it's pills, you know, whatever they're buying. And so there's a huge market there. So there's always a reason for some organization to exist. But if you cut off the heads for 20 years, then what you've got is a bunch of 16 year olds with guns who with no leadership and everybody's afraid to stick their head up and organize these guys because they're not that organized and they're kind of violent. Um, and because if they stick up their head and try to organize them, then they get their head cut off. And so, so what you end up having is a large number of really disorganized, they don't even call them gangs. Like the old guys that I know here in Chicago who used to run some of these gangs, um, they it, that because I've now got a big project in Chicago with, with, with the thing we're doing in Liberia at the CBT. We're actually running in Chicago right now with these high risk guys. But you you talk to the old gang leaders and they're like, oh, these guys aren't gangs. Like when we were young, we had organization, we had hierarchy. You know, we listened to the old guys. This is just their mobs and cliques. And that's what they call them, mobs and cliques. And it's just a group, you know, you live in a block and it's a group of a few, whatever, 18 year olds and you sell and you defend your territory and you've got some stupid dispute with the guy two blocks over and you keep shooting and you're in the cycle of violence this feud and it's a mess and there's nobody to organize it yeah. and so that's the bad that's the consequence potentially of this cutting off the head strategy yeah so so in conclusion chris you know um from a policy perspective so these are all sort of symptoms, right? So we see this in a lot of different countries, developing countries, underdeveloped areas, um, crime, violence, poverty, gang-related issues. What, what would be, um, you have done a lot of work in this area. So from a policy perspective, what would be sort of the one, two, three things that you'll focus on to sort of clean up, so to speak, an area? Well, so I think... Um... I think there's not a whole lot you can do if there's a fundamental market that these organizations are serving. You can yeah. you can try to stifle them or make them more disorganized. You can lock them up, but then you get the sort of the Chicago situation, which is, you know, there's just a lot of disorganized violence, but at least there's no real organized crime anymore. And so maybe that's an improvement. Um, I don't think you can take that strategy unless you do what they did with the mob, which is at the same time that you're cracking down on the mob or shortly before you crack down on the mob, you undermine their businesses. You run a bunch of state lotteries. Uh, so you, you, you go from, you no longer let them be the monopolist for the numbers racket or you, uh, you, you, uh, uh, or you, you know, you, you get rid of prohibition and you allow the legal sale of alcohol. 
uh, and you you provide consumer credit, you invent the credit card, right? And so these are things that sort of undermine the basic reason for these businesses to exist. And uh, and you weaken labor unions, whether that's intentional or not, but that was just a set of economic changes that happened. And, and so the labor rackets go down. So if you, you, you eliminate their economic reason to be, and then you crack down hard and then they'll go away. I think that's like an oversimplistic story for the mob in the United States. It's one I, I find plausible. So in Medellin or Chicago, if you're going to keep drugs illegal and and uh, crack down on leaders, then, you know, you're not, the problem's not going to totally go away. So, but, you know, legalizing drugs is hard uh, and it's problematic for its own reasons. At the very least, I think legalizing marijuana is a probably a step in the right direction. Um, yeah. In Medellin, they could they could get rid of a lot of the business lines by just you know consumer credit having that same revolution. It'll come eventually. Yeah, but the hard part is what do you do with the pills and the hard drugs? And if you there's a fundamental market that they're serving, there's consumer demand, and this is like the fundamental problem. I don't know that I don't know the solution to that. Um, it might be that legalization is the best of a set of bad options, but I'm I don't know enough to say that. Yeah, because so conceptually, what you're saying, Chris, is you have to disrupt the markets. You have their incentives in some fashion uh, to take care of it, right? So yeah, there's so to, much money to be made. You know, sort of small, yeah, yeah. So small systems like Liberia, for example, um, you know, I wondered, you know, the, the network effects that you know exist. Um, at least from, you know, I'm just hypothesizing that unless you can lift all 4 million in Liberia, mm -hmm. as an example, above the poverty threshold, any any local uh, impact, uh, you will see some local, local benefits for yeah. a period of time, but it's going to get, you know, <laughs> just like you're finding in the data that it's going to get uh, back to back to where it started. And so you need some sort of a systemic uplift for that. Well, you know, that's contrary to like what a lot of criminologists argue. And I'm sympathetic to that. So my friend Thomas Apt has a great book. He's at, uh, he was at Harvard. He's, um, he's now left for a think tank whose name escapes me. He's, he's got a book called Bleeding Out, which is mostly about how to tackle violence in the United States. But the same principles could apply anywhere, including Liberia. And this is actually to say that actually the people who are violent is usually if, you're, if we're talking about violence, if we're talking about like poverty, like, yeah, that's a big that's a big problem. But if we're just talking about violent people, that's a really small group of people. Right. In Liberia, it was a few thousand people, four million. You know, most people are not shooting in Liberia right now, at least not, you know, when the war was on, that was one thing. It's a few thousand people who are really at high risk of causing violence in Chicago this year, maybe. 3,000 people will pull a trigger, all right? And maybe a few thousand more are at risk of pulling a trigger. That's like a manageable number, right? So you're, the trick is actually, uh, yeah, it would be nice if you could make them all rich, but that's not going to happen soon. And that would be a really expensive and indirect way to solve violence. So, you know, the trick is to find out, figure out who those few thousand people are and how do you change their incentives uh, and opportunities. And you can do that by arresting them and cracking down, which is which is one strategy. And and uh, and you can do that by 
giving them, recognizing that this is not, they don't actually want to pull triggers a lot of the time. Some of them do, but most of them, this is like the guys in Liberia or half the guys that we're working with in Chicago do not want this life and they would like a better life. And so some, some, it is, I think some combination of therapy and jobs <clears throat> would actually provide a, would be a really important thing to do systematically. But again, it, we don't have to do it for millions of people. We just have to figure out the few thousand people and give it to them. And that solves a lot of problems. Yeah, I, I keep wondering, Chris, you know, uh, with COVID-19 here, a lot of countries talk about um, herd immunity for themselves, but there is no herd immunity for a local area or a country. Um, analogously, I would say, even if those numbers are small, if you're missing 10, 15, 20% of them, I wonder vaccinating 80% actually get you uh, get you to a stable position in the, in the long run. I just wonder. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so <clears throat> I think it depends what we're talking about. Uh, if we're talking just, yeah. a, if we're talking about um, relatively disorganized groups killing one another, which is what you had in Liberia and what you have to some degree in Chicago. Here in Chicago, it's because they were systematically leader, de-leaderized, whatever the word is. And in Liberia, it's because they were never organized really to begin with. So I think there it's pretty straightforward. Like most of these people, they don't really have a strong incentive to lead this life. And so I think you take one person out and you might even have a more than proportional benefit rather than a less than proportional benefit because they're not starting these cycles of violence in these feuds that that can that that characterize yeah. a lot of this kind of behavior, especially among young men. Um, right. So, so I think that's that's actually quite hopeful that you know you can have marginal effects that are quite large. Yeah. Yeah. So scale is scale is needed. So so you could you could argue completely against what I was saying, which is you could get to herd immunity at eighty percent because other 20% won't have a viable strategy to, you know, to, to really, uh, really put... Or they might, but at least it. you've taken care of 80% of the homicide. Big deal, right? Like that was, <laughs> that's a victory. Like taking care of 10% of the homicides is like a huge victory. So, you know, like take Liberia for... Okay, the program in Liberia costs 500 bucks. We could make it a lot better yeah. for, say, 1,000 bucks. And let's say there's 3,000 guys in the in the country who are really problematic. Uh, that's cheap. We're not talking a few million dollars. Um, now, finding them is hard, but we we've been able to do it. It's They're actually not that hard. People know in their community who the guy, like people know who the dangerous guy is. Like everybody's yeah. got an interest in knowing who the problem guy is. And they usually do not mind if you like help them turn their life around. They, they, some people will be like, I can't believe you gave them a thousand dollar program. Why did they get it? Not me. Most people are like, Thank God you dealt with that guy because that guy made me so freaky and, and including members of his own gang. Like most gang members don't pull a trigger. They don't like, most people don't like to shoot. Um, and the guy who's shooting for the gang, sometimes it's useful for the gang, but sometimes the people are just like, Oh man, like he's, he's just really screwing this up for all of us. Like we all feel insecure because so-and-so is like starting this feud with the gang next door. So, so there's an element of that. You know, most people don't like to live lives of violence and insecurity, including people in gangs. And so, so that, anyways, it's just to say, uh, it's not it's not that hard. But so, so you know, uh, in Liberia, 
a few million dollars a year would go a long way towards making the country like getting rid of a lot of the killings and a lot of there's not there's not other homicide a lot of it's like armed robbery some home invasions it's actually crime levels are very low compared to say some american cities uh i think it, it's working it's a lot more expensive in the united states because because you know it's you know it's about 50 times more expensive because people make like 50 times as much so like the program here the program we're running here i think is probably for identifying these really high-risk guys and delivering like a year and a half of cbt and services and and it's like 35k which is not cheap but yeah. it's cheaper than but homicide <laughs> so so you would say these are solvable problem problems that uh, very little investment and uh, it could be something that i don't know if foundations really look at this um you know as a solvable problem um most often they look at poverty as sort of a you know a disease that that's affecting a, a very large population um but but you know, wouldn't you say that in small systems like this, with very little investment, you could completely... Well, I wouldn't say completely. I mean, I, let's wait to see. I mean, the, the effects of this did wear off after a year and a half or so. I mean, probably. Like, we'll find out with the 10-year study. And the early results from our Chicago stuff is that this is not, like, a magic solution. Like, I think it helps a lot of people. Like, I, I, I guess I guess the thing... I, I would say there's a high social return on an investment, at least for a couple of years, on these mm -hmm. investments. Um, such that like, if we, if you, you know, you could spend $35,000 a year on a thousand or 2000 or 3000 men in Chicago. And if that just eliminates 20 homicides, which I think it does, we, that's kind of what we're seeing, but we'll see it's early in the study. Uh, that's told, that's a good, that's, that's cheaper than prison. That's cheaper than anything else we do in criminal justice in the United States. So, so it's a high social return investment relative to our other solutions. You're never going to solve the problem completely. Uh, you can just make, I think you can make good progress. The problem is that actually in Chicago, people are really willing to put money behind this. Foundations, private foundations have been amazing. Uh, it's really, they're really far thinking and thoughtful. It's not been my general experience. It, most people, most foundations and governments and programs don't think, you know what I'd really like to spend most of my budget on this year? Uh, the Like the street thugs. Those are the guys, I'm gonna really be able to sell that to my boss. And you know what? Uh, you know what I'm gonna and 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 you know because my boss, you know, your boss is like would rather you go and find some village of poor women or children or you know like photogenic or people who feel like they deserve it, right? These guys aren't deserving in anybody's imagination, and they're not. But I mean, well, in some ways they are. They're victims as well in a lot of cases. Uh, but it's they're not. They don't evoke sympathy, and so you have to like. And then you just have to do it every year for like the next crop of violent 20 year old. Right. Uh, and the year after that, the year after that. And, right. um, and that's, and when you're running the program, you know, you have to deal with the fact that some of these guys will keep killing and you're like, okay, what do I do? It just think of yourself as an NGO. I'm running a program. I have these guys like, killers and whatnot in my program because they're the most dangerous people. And then they do something really bad on site. They don't kill anybody, but you know, they, they beat up someone who works for the program. Do I get rid of, do I kick them out of the program? And on the one hand, of course, it might, it's partly even consistent with CBT, like there has to be consequences, but also 
I can't like give up on these guys because if I get if I kick him out, he's just going to kill somebody instead of just beating them up. And so and so that makes sense. But if you're running this program and these guys are like beating up somebody every six months in your program, like what do you do with that? That's just it's hard. It's really hard to work with this population. This has been uh, this has been great, Chris. Thanks oh, so much pleasure. for spending time with me. Yeah, good luck with this research. It's uh, it's really important. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.